coming to you from beautiful Santa Barbara, California. Promoting peace, healthy living, and happiness. It's the Peace Podcast with host Barbara Gon Mueller. Hello, I'm Barbara Gon Mueller. Do you realize? you wonderful viewers who I count on. We are almost at 100 podcasts. I created a little sticker that says celebrating 100 peace podcasts. That's what we're about, isn't it? That the peace is what we want on our planet. And I am so delighted. And you're going to thank me for our guest today after you hear Paula Garb. Paula Garb and I met on a conference. I was the keynoter and she was the key ender. And we were just talking at the Long Beach UNA Peace Day. And I began with the stories of my life and how my grandfather said at three, I would be a peacemaker. And my life kind of always reflected peace. And here I am today doing peace podcasts with peace builders, peacemakers, and peace dreamers. To be a peace dreamer, think of what that means. It means that someday we will have no wars and no drama beyond the war. It's not only the war fighters that go into drama. It's those who are left home praying, crying, and children who are raised without their parents. Those are the war fighter victims, and they don't cover, recover immediately. Paula will tell you how it takes three generations for a family to get over the wounds that they achieved or received or the bad news that they got. And you know Robert Mueller, my late husband, also suffered the atrocities of war and spent his whole life working for peace. And today we're going to talk to Paula. Let me tell you a little bit about Paula Garb. She's Dr. Paula Garb, co-founder of the Center for Citizen Peace Building, and that for 20 years it's co-director, and she's still on their board. She's a senior fellow for a center of peace building practice at George Mason University. There's so much I could tell you about her. In 1994, she facilitated citizen dialogues and taught peaceful problem solving skills in conflict zones. Peaceful problem, problem solving skills. We all need that, don't we? Those solving that the problems are there. And it's up to us to have that conversation that allows some solution, some solution, I was going to say something's soft and beautiful and a solution that might work for all. She's a researcher. She's finishing her memoir and she says she said it's done and she's about to release it. And I have a literary agent that I'm going to send her to because we really want that book out there. If you only knew what this woman has been trying to do for the last 30 years. For 25 years, she taught courses in mediation, conflict resolution, civic and community engagement at UC Irvine. And you see that in the left-hand corner of your screen. And gang mediation and negotiations at UCI. Gang mediation. Oh my goodness, do we need you. And at the California State University, Los Angeles. With all that background and all the work you've been doing, my question is, what caused you, what 
brought you to this point in your life that you felt that you could go into war zones after the war or during the war and bring some kind of peace to the people who may have started the wars, who are leftovers, who are, who are there with the war wounded. So Paula, what caused you to do this incredible work that you're doing today? You know, you your life is peace building. It's you that will help these traumatized families live their lives better. Thank you, Paula, for joining us today. So what was it that made you such a peace builder in spite of the results that sometimes aren't, aren't easy to achieve? Very interesting question. I really stumbled into the work. I had no idea that this was really my vocation. Uh, as a little girl, I thought I was going to be a ballerina. I was in love with the Russian Bolshoi ballet. And um, my father, who was um, a janitor and um, had to drop out of college, um, had introduced me, taken to me a ballet, to a ballet when I was a little girl. And I said, this chubby little girl said, I'm going to be a ballerina. So I actually spent my whole childhood uh, training for that. But around the time the Vietnam War broke out and I didn't even know there was a place called Vietnam, I found a flyer at, a, uh, at the public library where I was studying in San Jose. And I, within a day, was uh, at an anti-Vietnam War march in San Francisco. And that, ended up taking me on a different trajectory. I, I quit ballet and I wanted to make the world a more just and equitable place. And I ended up in the Soviet Union. Um, my tour guide, uh, I'm very sorry, I'm on uh, Wi-Fi on my phone so I can't shut it off. Um, but we don't even hear it, isn't that interesting? Oh, that's wonderful. I got kicked off for a moment. Yeah. Long story short, I stumbled into it as a 40-year-old who was uh, watching the Soviet Union collapse and wars taking place in areas where I had studied as an anthropologist and had dear friends who were dying and displaced by this war. And so once there was a ceasefire, I decided that I would help people talk across this bloody divide. <clears throat> like I say, that's how I stumbled into it. But a lot of people who do this work stumble in and out of it or parachute in and out of it. I think the real question is what kept me in it for so long because it's a very hard, long job that takes much more patience than I ever thought possible. Because I learned that the whole societies are traumatized by war. And <clears throat> there are very few people on each side who even want to be in the same room with somebody who uh, represents this side, which caused so much trauma and grief. And somewhere after the first few years, I was wondering, why do I keep doing this? 
And the answer came to me. It was my father, who in 1919 was a nine-year-old in Civil War Russia, in a Jewish community that was attacked by anti-communist soldiers who wanted to destroy the entire Jewish community. And my father survived uh, miraculously with a couple of other siblings, but I never knew that story from his lips. I was told as a little girl, this is too hard for your father to ever discuss. So my father lived, uh, inspired me to, to understand that peace was the only way people could survive. So I got that from him. But I think what sustains me these many decades of peace work is my father's trauma and later my son's trauma because while I was doing stump how, how I stumbled into this peacemaking in these this war zone that once was you know where I studied anthropology my son was a cameraman um tromping through real wars active wars Afghanistan Iraq and the other wars of the collapsing Soviet state. And over 20 years, I watched him decline. Mm. I watched his PTSD um, overtake him, mm. his family. And um, unbeknownst to all of us, he was drinking very heavily at night to sleep. And he ended up dying very suddenly of cirrhosis of the liver mm. uh, in 2016. So while I was making peace, my son was getting traumatized by war and my friends, you know, affected by war, not to mention my Vietnam War uh, high schoolers who I lost in, in the Vietnam War because I was of that generation. But I think a combination of just having been around a lot of traumatized people, traumatized by war and therefore having some secondary trauma probably um, keeps me committed and passionate. I just want to thank you. What a horrible experience you must have ex had to be in the family that saw this beautiful young man turn into this kind of traumatized adult. And not because he wanted to be a traumatized adult, but because he wanted to work for peace. It's just such a dichotomy that here he is working for peace, shooting each other. It just doesn't make any sense. As I think about war, I think that there are no winners. Peace is not fought by fighting. Peace is won by people like you, Paula, Dr. Paula Gout, that we're listening to today, who lived in the Soviet Union for 20 years. She knows what it's like to have a son and a grandchild living in Russia today. She's experienced the war in Ukraine on a very personal level. As the war goes on for the eighth month, what are you most concerned about now, Paula, for your family and for you? Paula is in the United States right now. Uh, she's in New York, but her family is still in Russia. And Russia, once upon a time, was a beautiful place. I have so many friends who wrote stories about going to Russia and being treated like a queen or a king and, and love. There was so much love. So it's, an, it's a really hard time for you, isn't it, Paula? 
it's uh, I, I, it's like having a loved one go insane, watching a loved one go insane. Um, I think about it every day, how, um, how shocking it is that the country which was so anti-war after World War II, which attracted me because, you know, I could never imagine the Russian people ever going to war again. And, and look what we see. Um, now I did um, mention to you, and I haven't mentioned though in this podcast, how I did spend a good deal of that latter part of the Cold War working with Americans and Soviets who were trying to bridge that divide at that time. And those are the years I think you're talking about too, when you know we were bringing the two enemies together and showing each other how it all, you know, at, at some basic level, we're all really human and want the best for our children. We want good schools. We want enough to eat and shelter. And we don't want to hurt other people. Most even soldiers don't really shoot their guns and kill other soldiers as what we know from the research. So even if you send young men and women to war, not all of them, far from all of them, can do the killing that theoretically they're asked to do. So yes, I, my heart goes out to all the people in Ukraine who are suffering today from that aggressive, unnecessary war. Unnecessary But I'm also so grieved for the Russians mm. who can't do anything about it because at a very high level, everything is being decided and they have no influence over those decisions. And I grieve for my own family that I can't see right now. I grieve for the grave sites that I can't go to because they're in Russia. My father was buried in Russia. My son was buried next to him. And actually just less than 10 days ago, my great grandson was buried next to them. Oh my gosh. I'm about to cry right here, Paula. These are the tears. I'm so sorry. Oh no, these are the tears of sadness. These are the tears of a grandmother, of a mother, of a daughter, of a a sister. We grieve, and we have every right to grieve these atrocities that are created by. I'm just going to say it, madmen who have something in their. DNA that says it's okay. It's not okay. And we're not going to put up with it. If you only heard some of the conversations Paula and I had about women have to step forward. Our voices have to be there. We have to cry in public. We have to show the pain that we are going through. As I watch the news, I say to myself, well, what are the lessons we're learning from this? Is there a lesson here? Paula, I'm going to ask you, you know, peace building you really have devoted your life to it. You understand it. You understand it from the very basics as an anthropologist. What is it that we can learn from this to secure an end to all wars? So first of all, the good news is most people, most of the time throughout history in most of the world, all of the world, have found other ways to solve their problems, not war. We hear so much about it, we think that that's almost in our DNA. I really don't believe it is. Yes, 
people are prone to violence. Some people are, but mostly we're hardwired not to engage in violence. We might withdraw from other people. We might uh, try to find ways to cooperate, which by the way, we don't learn very well from a young age. So we're all stumbling through that. And that's where I find hope. Um, uh, my good friend who we haven't talked about, but Paul Chappelle, who mm -hmm. also I think is somebody uh, in your circle, um, is someone who presented this very logical idea about how much has changed even in one person's lifetime. In my uh, lifetime in this country, there's been a sea change of views on, on uh, let's say black and white marriages. Those were considered, the racial mixing was considered almost as terrible as maybe 10 to 15 years ago, gay marriage was thought of in this country. And we saw the sea change in that area. Not that there aren't still people who have these old ideas, but there's been a sea change of attitudes. So why, and, and uh, the greatest example he gives is literacy. There was a time in human uh, like in ancient Greece, nobody thought everybody needed to learn to read and write and do arithmetic. Only the elites needed to do that. And now who on earth would say, oh, kids don't need to learn to read and write and do arithmetic. And I say, and Paul Chappelle says, and lots of others of us say, why can't we add peace literacy to the curriculum, which I call peaceful problem solving? Isn't that as important as reading, writing, and arithmetic? I started to learn these principles in my 40s. And so I still have to remind myself not to react, but to respond. I still have to remind myself to listen and not judge or, um, you know, to try to find out why somebody thinks the way they think instead of spending all my time thinking how I'm going to rebut them. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that if we taught our children from a very early age mm -hmm. how to do that, and if that was in all the schools around the world with the same vigor that we teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, we could overcome uh, this small propensity some people have for picking up weapons and killing each other if they don't like what the other is doing. We could get rid of that behavior. What I love that to get rid of the behavior that causes us to hurt another, you know, I, I was a teacher in my previous um, career and I made um, opportunities for children to have disagreements. And then how do you dissolve into agreement from a disagreement to an agreement? And what I found was they, I just would say your turn to talk and the other one had to be quiet and polite. And they listened to each other because I would insist that they didn't talk back, that they didn't have an idea to share, but to, just to be present. Anyway, you and I have had probably so many opportunities to watch the, the resilience of children. And if they learn peace literacy, just think what they bring into their adulthood. You know, um, I've always said that 
nobody should get a driver's license without a course on peace literacy because there's so much road rage out there, but it's a beginning, you know, don't get a driver's license or don't get a marriage license till you've been through a peace settling or some kind of a course that teaches you ideas that will help you in your future so that you don't have to go to the war zone in your own marriage or in your family, but how can you all get along? And so You've been um, working with women, and, and I'm pretty pleased to hear some of the things we shared during our pre-conference here. Talk about the role of women today. What are we going to do to bring us to the belief that we do have a voice, that we can stop these idiotic wars, that we can live in peace on a planet? And and, and I did my I, when I did my opening. Um, this is a little sidebar here at the um, Long Beach conference. I said, imagine our world at peace. Just imagine our world at peace. So Paula, what can women do to help us achieve that goal? So the costs of war far outweigh any of the benefits. And what I found in my own personal experience in these wars where I actually work with the people and know intimately how things started, how they escalated, and what the problems are in putting things back together. In all these cases, whether I've studied them personally or know about them, the problem that was originally the reason to go to war doesn't get solved. Dozens more problems get made. And that's why it's so hard to go back. So of course, prevention, and I talked about education, the role of education, that's a long-term role, but let's start now. You know, let's, let's prepare the next generation. But for now, my biggest concern and my hope is that when there is finally a ceasefire and hopefully some kind of an agreement between Russia and Ukraine, I can personally start working with Ukrainian women that I know, Russian women that I know, other women that I know, who also understand how this cost of war has taken away family members, maybe physically, literally, or emotionally, somehow leverage the voices of women survivors of a war to stop this war and others. Although I'm you know, a little pessimistic that we can do anything to stop this war now that it's well underway, but I will be ready at the first opportunity to start with those women willing to talk to each other, even if they're only willing to tell each other off even if it's only about expressing their anger at the other side. And, you know, with your help, perhaps Rotary can play a role in that um, because we do have people in all of those places to, to work with. But I do feel like if enough women around the world can be brought together who have intimately experienced war firsthand, which is not me, and those of us who have experienced it secondhand, uh, could get together and really make 
a difference in how we solve problems in the future. Say, enough. This is the last war that we are going to allow men to escalate and to uh, get this far. Because when I looked at all of the negotiations on TV, the few times that they showed us, it was all men at the negotiation table, all of them men. And I love men, they're great allies and accomplices in my life and the life of many other women. But when they seem to have strong interest in military matters, in using and producing weapons, they don't make very good decisions. Not decisions that are good for women and not for children and not for men either. And, and think about that. They're sitting in a concrete room with barely no new fresh air. I've always said, I lived in Costa Rica with my late husband, Robert Mueller, and we he started the University for Peace. And I remember going outside when we had to make a decision about something. We never stayed in the house to make a decision. We went out to nature because nature has a way of getting along with each other, the trees and the roots and all of that. So I, I would, we, we wrote 7,500 ideas for a better world. And one of them was my idea, which is every decision about our future should be made in nature, not in a concrete wall with artificial wow. light. And just think, look at your beautiful tree behind you. If that tree were there, those beautiful jacaranda trees, is that what it's called? The it jac is. The jacaranda trees, the, um, the carpet of flowers that they leave and just sit in that carpet of flowers and be grateful for nature and not destroy it. And I thought if we could be in nature when we make decisions, it will certainly be a different decision. And I have a good friend who's on one of our podcasts, Dr. Elizabeth Satoris, who is environmental biologist and uh, just a brilliant woman. And she said, when she went to Peru, she asked the wise ladies, the wise woman of the town, what would you do to um, end all these wars? She said, I'd run my world like a family. And I would have strict rules and regulations, but I'd also have a heck of a lot of love. And I'd know that every rule and regulation that I had would be like planet management, like I manage my home, planet management. We don't even talk about planet management. We still think of our isolation, our different countries, our, our borders. And my late husband said, if we got rid of all the borders, think of what would happen. We'd have a world where we'd have to learn to adjust, of course. We'd have to learn how to get along because we'd have people at our door and we'd have to learn to do like the natives did, share. What a concept, share our love, share our resources and not pile up for what? We're all going to die, God bless us. We're all going to go to our eternal reward. And I want us to go back to that paradise we were born into. When I was living in Costa Rica, I lived very simply. And I remember my gardener saying, my gardener in Santa Barbara, where I live now, said, you live like that? And I said, yes. He said, that's how poor people live. I said, no, it's not poor people. It's choice people, our choice. My choice was to live in nature. My choice was to have a door that swung open and closed. It, and I had a turkey for a 
pet. And that was my choice. And I didn't have electricity and I didn't have um, hot water. I didn't have a heater, but I got along. I knew what I was doing. I may not have had good cell phone reception, but it didn't matter. That wasn't my purpose. My purpose was to bring peace to our planet. So I did a lot of thinking about how can we do that? And the, the legend of Mount Rasur is that from this mountain, peace will go to the entire world. Think about that legend. It's wonderful. And I think uh, I'd love to hear more about your Costa Rica story. So first of all, I am now going to make it one of our family, family rules that we solve whatever differences we might have by going out to Central Park first. Uh, we're steps away. And speaking of Costa Rica, isn't that an incredible precedent set? Since 1948, which is the year I was born, Costa Rica has not had a military. And we don't hear about people clamoring to leave Costa Rica to come to the United States. And there they are in the middle of uh, uh, Central America, Latin America, beset by so many problems and the people of Costa Rica are very happy to stay for the most part in Costa Rica because they're not a militaristic society and nobody nobody has started a war against Costa Rica That's even right. though it doesn't have it's a demilitarized country and the piece of property that we own is where um, Jose Figueres gathered up all the farmers with their machetes to overthrow the dictator. And I remember the first thing he did when well, I wasn't born, but in the, during that period, the first thing he did, according to legend, is he told all of the war prisoners, go home to your families. You don't belong in a jail. Goodbye. We love you. Just leave. And that the, was the beginning of demilitarizing Costa Rica with machetes and good thoughts and the women. I remember stories about um, Jose Figueres and all the, the farmers sitting under this tree on our property, which we don't tell too many people because we don't want anybody to go up there and try to overthrow something. I don't know what they'll overthrow. But anyway, uh, and the women of the town would bring the food up and they would eat and everything. And then they would get more shovels and more machetes. And then one day they had their courage up and they went to town and released all the war prisoners and the political prisoners and took over the country. And so Jose Figueres is like a hero in, in Costa Rica. Now, what do they do with all that military money? Free education, free medical, hospitals, you name it. When Robert, my husband at that time, was getting cataracts, he had the best equipment ever to remove his cataract from his eye. The best doctor in the world, all for nothing. It didn't cost him a penny. And so anyway, that's how Costa Rica uses their money for the betterment of their citizens. And it's, it's just beautiful there. That's all I can say. Now I'm living in Santa Barbara because I'm working more closely with people such as you to bring peace to our planet. I have a dream that within my lifetime, we will see the peace that we've been wanting all our lives. And that would make my grandfather, who immigrated from Hungary to avoid World War I, to make my grandfather very proud of his statement at dinner every night when we would have dinner together. He'd say, and now we're going to talk about peace because war does not work. So I have that in my DNA, and it seems like you have it in your DNA, too. 
Yes, and um, most of my students knew that when I would say 2050, that I meant that is what we're working towards. In 2050, when I'm over 100 years old, we will see a demilitarized world. Oh, so that was that. our code word for I, a better future. You know, I was going to ask you for your dream for the world, and you just gave it to us. And we're kind of at the end of our podcast. And again, I want to thank each of you for tuning in to sit down with a friend, watch this podcast, or do, do it at different homes, but you can both be watching at the same time and have a conversation about what we can do today to make Dr. Paula Gout's uh, dream come true, Garb, rather, I didn't mean to say, I don't know what I meant to say, but Dr. Paula Garb, this wonderful woman who has experienced the loss of her children in war zones and the post-traumatic stress, you know, we've been working for peace for so long, so why not let's have peace? Let's get peace on our planet and let it start in the schools and let it begin with you. I'll never forget Jill Jackson Miller saying, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Let it begin with you and me and all the women and men on this planet who know that war does not bring peace. And so with that, I'm Barbara Gahn-Mueller. Thank you for joining us on Peace Podcast. And please, Invite your friends to watch this and have that conversation. So without further ado, go to peacepodcast.org and be sure you tell your friends that it's possible that war is going to end in our lifetime. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Paula. Thank you so much. And onward to 2050. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.